So you may not know this about me, but I'll let you in. I'll let you in. I'll, I'll even date myself a little bit. But I grew up in Chicago, Illinois, or outside of Chicago, Illinois, and I grew up in the 1990s. So listen, I am a little bit of a Michael Jordan fan, okay? I'm a little bit of a Bulls fan. In fact, you should get excited about this. I hope you are. I hope you are. I brought photo evidence of this from when I was a child. Are you ready? Are you ready to see me as a kid? And if you've seen my kids, you're going to go, well, that's just Paul's kids, but, but no, that's actually me with the bowl cut in the mid-90s and my family, my mom and dad and the sister, and I've got more photos. It's not just one. Here I am. These are cousins and aunts and uncles and my parents. Again, another Bulls jersey, and here's the final one here. No jersey, but is that not cute? Everybody go, aww. Oh, that's cuter than that. Come on, right? That's me and my cousin Ben. Uh, ben is just six months younger than me. We grew up together, same preschool, same kindergarten. I mean, same school all the way through our high school graduation. We're super close friends. And he texted me earlier this year, and he said, hey, man, like, are you going to watch it, right? That's the trailer for The Last Dance, the 10-part documentary series that came out about Michael Jordan and his final season in Chicago, 97-98. It dropped on ESPN in April. An average of 5.6 million people watched every single episode. And, and, you know, I didn't, I didn't have ESPN at the time, so I was like, well, no, but I'll, I'll get it on Netflix in July. And I binged it this summer. Millions of people watched this in April. Millions of people watched this in July because MJ is still, even 20 years later, he is a part of our public consciousness. He's a part of our conversation. And, and really, that answers the question. You might have the question. You might be wondering, why are we talking about MJ in chapel? It's a really good question. Really good question. Why are we talking about him in chapel? Well, here's the thing. Even if you didn't watch The Last Dance, even if you're not a huge sports fan like I am, even if you're not a Bulls fan or a Jordan fan like I am, you know who Michael Jordan is. The, the music started, the, the trailer began, the, it dropped in, and he came on the screen, and you're like, oh, sure, MJ. <laughs> like, everyone knows who MJ is. And that's the connection. You see, we're starting a four-week teaching series today in chapel called A Close Reading Of. A Close Reading Of. And there's a reason why we're doing this type of a teaching series. It's because I believe this very, very deeply. I believe that all of us must become cultural analyzers, not just cultural consumers. I believe all of us must become cultural analyzers, not just cultural consumers. And this is because as we consume culture, as we take it in and as we interact with it, culture and cultural artifacts, they're teaching us something. They are forming us. They are shaping us. They are making us. And we should not take in any teaching. We should not take in any formation without running it through a grid of is this true or is this not true? We must always analyze. We must always discern. And that includes my teaching, by the way. Right, I stand up here on Wednesdays, on Fridays, you watch me on video, and I say, hey, I'm not an expert, but I think I may have learned one or two things, and I just want to introduce you, I want to go on a journey with you, I want to teach you, and I don't want you to take this in without analyzing it, without pushing back or saying, is that true, or how true is it, right? I'm wrestling, we're wrestling together. I believe the only thing that is completely true at all times and in all ways that we never have to question is the Word of God. We got to understand the word of God and study the word of God and interpret the word of God, absolutely. But everything else, everything else, everything else we need to analyze. 
We need to question at some level, is this true, is this not true? And the problem with cultural artifacts, with movies, with books, with, uh, with uh, songs, with um, uh, media sources, the problem with these cultural artifacts is that we forget to analyze and we only consume. We never question, we just take it in and we never analyze. So we're going to model this together. We're going to go on a journey over the next four weeks and we're going to do a close reading of dot, dot, dot. A close reading of. What is that, right? When you look at something close. When you read it, you're, you're analyzing it. What is true in this? And we're going to do that with four different cultural phenomenons, four different cultural artifacts. And this morning, we're beginning with Michael Jordan, a close reading of Michael Jordan. Now, you still may think that's a strange place to begin with a teaching series like this. How is a person a cultural artifact? How does one consume Or how does one analyze a person? And with virtually anyone else, I would agree with you. Like with me, Paul Brandis, we could not do a close reading of Paul Brandis. It just, it wouldn't work because I'm not a cultural phenomenon. I'm not a cultural artifact. But listen to me, friends, when they make commercials about you like this, you're on a different level. Let's watch. Like, do you know what I mean? (laughs) Like a bunch of marketing executives sat in a room and planned that. Okay, we're going to do the Jordan spot. How do we want to frame it? How do we want to, what's the hook of the Jordan spot? And the hook of the Jordan spot that they ran this in the 90s was everybody wants to be like Mike. Everybody wants to be Michael Jordan. The guy's got it all. Everyone wants to be like him. Everybody wants to be him. Let's leverage that and let's imply, actually, we're not even going to apply. We're going to come out and say that the reason Mike is Mike is because he drinks Gatorade, right? This is the final shot. Be like Mike. Drink Gatorade. Now, you and I both know if I drink a gallon of Gatorade, I'm still not going to be able to do what Michael Jordan does on a basketball court. Amen? in the house, right? I mean, I'm good at basketball, but no amount of Gatorade in the world is going to change that. The girls' basketball team is laughing at me. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) But what they're grabbing at in this ad is everybody wanted to be like Michael Jordan. The level of fame, the level of notoriety, right? The level level of cultural impact. I just, one more example, okay? Because none of you were there, right? None of you were born, none of you were there. I have to illustrate how big a deal the original Michael Jordan was. And here's the reason I'm using the word original, because there's another Michael Jordan, is there not? Come on, MBJ, where are you? There you are. <laughs> I know, I know. It's a good-looking dude, okay? Uh, my, this guy's famous in his own right, but at some point on the, on the come-up for him, he was like, you know what I need to do? I need to use the B <laughs> in my middle name, or everyone is going to think that I'm the original Michael Jordan. Okay, this is the level of fame that MJ, you know I don't mean this MBJ, MJ, I don't even have to say his full name, you know who I'm talking about. Michael Jordan, the original MJ, he transcended sport, he transcended basketball, he became a cultural phenomenon, the likes of which we have hardly seen before or since. So yes, we can analyze him. We can ask a question about him. 
We have to be careful when we do that because we don't know him personally, but we're going to be careful. But here's what I wonder about with MJ more than anything else. It doesn't keep me up at night, but I wonder this very deeply. What happens when you get it all? What happens when you get it all? And by all, I mean everything that the world has to offer. Think about what people want out of life. Some people want fame and notoriety. We've sort of covered that already. He's so famous that another famous guy had to go by a different name so that people wouldn't think he was the first famous guy. In the 1990s, I I really believe this. This is not an overstatement made for effect. I think Michael Jordan was the most famous person in the entire world. Not United States, the entire world. In the first month that ESPN let Netflix put the Last Dance documentary on their, their service outside the U.S. It hits outside the U.S. first. So this is international. In the first month, 30 days, 23.8 million people watched it. He's still probably one of the top 10 most famous people in the entire world, and he hasn't picked up a basketball in almost 20 years. Okay, so fame, check. But that's not all. Some people don't want fame out of life. Some people want money. Some people want the full bank account, right? Well, MJ did okay there too. Just like slightly. Forbes estimates that his net worth is 1.6 billion. Dude owns a basketball team. Only 30 people do that. he's, He's fine. Check. Some people don't want money. Some people don't want fame. Some people want success or achievements. Some people want to be the best at their career. How'd he do there? Well, there's debate about whether or not he's the GOAT. I don't think there's a debate, but people are like, well, maybe it's LeBron. Okay, I love me some LeBron, okay? There's debate about whether he's the GOAT, but when he was playing, there was no debate. For about 15, 10, 15 years, it was like, yeah, Michael's the best. Even other players would say Michael's the best. It reached such a level of his success in his career that there was a thing in the NBA. You don't trash talk him because if you trash talk Michael, he goes to another level. Okay, so check. He achieved just like a modicum of success in his career. Fame, money, success, respect. He was revered. He was feared. Check, 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 check. From one perspective, it certainly seems like MJ has it all. And yet. But you take a close look at MJ and I don't know. You do a close reading of him and I think the answer to this question, what happens when you get it all, I think the answer might be this. It still might not be enough. What happens when you get it all? It still might not be enough. Now, again, I do not know MJ personally. How great would that be? I love the guy. That'd be awesome. Okay, I don't know him personally. I'm not, I don't want to overstate this. What happens when you get it all? It still might not be enough. And I started wondering about this related to Michael Jordan because of an article that ESPN did about him back in 2013. It's one of the best pieces of sports writing I've ever read. I highly recommend Googling it later. It's called Michael Jordan Has Not Left the Building. Google that, read it. It's amazing writing. And I started wondering about this question related to MJ because because of the article, but because of what he says within it. His quotes, listen, listen to to this. This is not him, but this is about the art. Okay, you'll you'll track with me. His self-esteem has always been, as he says, tied directly to the game. Without it, he feels this word, right? Without it, he feels adrift. Who am I? 
What am I doing? For the past 10 years since retiring for the third time, he has been running, moving as fast as he could, creating distractions, distance. When the schedule clears, he'll call his office and tell them not to bother him for a month to let him relax and play golf. But three days later, they'll get another call asking if the plane can pick him up and take him someplace. He's restless. So he owns the Bobcats, does his endorsements, plays hours of golf, hoping to block out thoughts of 2.18. But then he gets off a boat, comes home to a struggling team. He feels his competitiveness kick in, almost a chemical thing. And he starts working out, and he wonders, could he play at 50? What would he do against LeBron? What if? It's consumed me so much, he says. I'm my own worst enemy. I drove myself so much that I'm still living with some of those drives. I'm living with that, and I don't know how to get rid of it. I don't know if I could, and here I am, still connected to the game. Now, you might be wondering what's up with the number 218. Why is he obsessed with 218? It's his playing weight. It's how much he weighed when he dominated the NBA when he was the best player in the world. And you read the article and you sort of get the sense, because he's heavier than that now, but you sort of get the sense that he thinks if he could get back down to 218, he actually could beat LeBron even at age 50. You sort of get the sense that if he just got back down to 218, he thinks, I could be the best again. And again, I don't know, MJ, I want to be fair. The article really beautifully talks about how he's growing, improving, changing. It talks a lot about his second wife and how she has been so helpful to him, so centering for him, to him. I desperately hope that MJ finds what he's looking for. I desperately hope that the journey that all of us are on to find peace and wholeness and meaning is, is a journey that Jordan can, can, can succeed in and that he can find that. And maybe he has. I don't know for sure. But from my perspective... My very limited perspective, that article and even the documentary, the Last Dance documentary, reveal a Michael Jordan that's a bit adrift, aimless. Like, what do I do now that the most important part of my life is over? What do I do now that the most important part of my life is over? I chose MJ for this teaching series because I love him. I really, really do. And I chose him because I, I happen to think he's a pretty good illustration for this question. And I wanted to ask you this question this morning. What happens when you get it all? I wanted to ask you this question. I think Michael helps us get there a little bit. And I'm not the first person to ask a question like this. I'm not the first person to wonder about something in this arena. What happens when you get it all? Others have before me. And you know me well enough to know where I'm going with this, don't you? <laughs> you know who else I think has wondered about a question like this. 2,000 years before me, 6,000 miles away, a man named Jesus Christ asked a very similar question to a crowd of people. The book of the Bible, Luke, chapter 9, verse 29, this is Jesus Christ speaking, and he asks the crowd this question, what do you benefit if you gained the whole world? but you yourself are lost or destroyed. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but you yourself are lost or destroyed? Now again, don't mishear me. I'm not saying this for sure has happened to Michael Jordan. I don't know, so I'm, I'm not saying that. But notice with me, will you, that the question is the same. What happens when you get it all? And Jesus says, what do you benefit to gain the whole world if in the process you lose your true self. It's lost. It's destroyed. 
The clear implication to Jesus' question, the clear answer that he's implying is that there is no benefit. There is no benefit to gaining the whole world if in the process you lose your real, true self. What happens if you get it all? Still might not be enough. Now let's back out in this passage for a moment. We've got one verse here, right? Let's back out because you actually are probably going to recognize these verses if you uh, were at Sterling College last year. I know some of you are, are new this year, which is wonderful. We love you. But if you were here last year, it was my first year too, last school year. And the very first chapel of my very first year, the very first time that I stood on this stage and said anything to any of you as your chaplain, as your pastor, I selected Luke chapter 9, verses 23, 24, and 25. And so let's step back and take a look at them again together and discover what we find once more. Then Jesus said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Other translations say deny yourself. You must take up your cross daily and you must follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but you yourself are lost or destroyed? I chose this passage for my first chapel ever because it is an excellent summary passage of how one begins to follow Jesus. There's maybe no better passage to summarize what it means to begin to make yourself a follower of Jesus or to become a follower of Jesus or to become a Christian. And if you haven't noticed by now, even if you're new, you've probably caught this, that's kind of my thing. I just will not, gosh darn it, shut up about that about why following Jesus is the most important part of my life and why I think you should make it the most important part of your life and why if you're not doing it, you should do it. I'm not trying to jam it down your throat. I don't want to do that. But we talk a lot about this. I think it matters. And in that message, the one last school year, you're forgiven for not remembering. I barely remember it, and I was the one that gave it. It was over a year ago. But in that message, we focused our time on verse 23, the very first verse that's on this screen right now. And we talked about Jesus' invitation to deny ourselves control. We talked about his invitation to take up our crosses and follow him. We unpacked these ideas, and what we discovered in that message was that following Jesus is not necessarily easy. What we discovered is that Jesus does not promise ease. Jesus does not promise no hardship. In fact, denying ourselves is hard. That's stressful, difficult work. And the cross, Jesus says, take up your cross. That's how you follow me. We know that that is an instrument of death and torture and pain and suffering. And I joked in that message, right? If Jesus Christ was, uh, if he was enrolled at Sterling College, if he was taking a marketing class, and if his assignment was to make it compelling to follow him, I think he might have failed. He would have gotten an F. The professor would have gone, I don't know, Jesus. Um, you haven't really painted a beautiful picture of this necessarily. Denial, cross. I mean, what? People are going to just say, where do I sign? And with Jesus, you always have to keep going. You always have to keep going. You always have to dig more, find more. What is he getting at here? So let's keep reading. Verse 24 again. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. This is the answer. This is why he shouldn't have failed that assignment. This is the answer. 
from Jesus of why it is worth following him. It may not be easy. He's not promising that. He's not promoting that. But it is the only way to true life that lasts forever. Following Jesus is the only way, the only way to true life that lasts forever. It may not be easy, but it is the only way. And listen, here's the deal. You know this already. I know you do. You've discovered this, even though you haven't lived a ton of years yet, but you know this to be true. Life is hard. Life is hard. There's no question about that. If you happen to be here wondering, will life be hard? Yes. It's not, it's not a question. It, it, it is a reality. It is a true reality that we know better than almost any true reality based on the deep brokenness of this world around us. And Jesus knows this is true as well. Hardship exists. In a different book of the Bible about his life, the Gospel of John, Jesus says this, in this world, to his closest friends, his closest followers, he says, in this world you will have trouble. He does not say, well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe trouble will come. If, you might. Yeah, I don't know. You will have trouble. But again, with Jesus, you can't just stop short. You have to keep going because the end of that verse, John 16, Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Do you see? Jesus doesn't promise easy. In fact, he says it will be hard. But Jesus does promise that he is the only thing that is bigger than the hard that you will face. Jesus does not promise an easy life. He lived a hard life himself. He knows that life will be hard for each and every one of us. He does not guarantee that. It's one of the worst false teachings that the church has ever put forward. Jesus' promise is that he's the only one that's bigger than any hardship that you'll ever face. And here's the catch with Jesus. It's not really a catch, but it's just the way it is. And it's plain to see this with Luke 9. With Jesus, it's all or nothing. With Jesus, it's all or nothing. He wants all of you. Jesus wants all of you, not just part of you. I mean, look again at verse 24. He actually says that to follow him, you have to lose your life. Lose it. Here's the bottom line. Jesus is inviting you to make him the most important part of your life. Jesus is inviting you to make him the most important part of your life. He's not just inviting you to make him a part of your life. The most important part, not just a part. He's not inviting you to put him somewhere on the list. Oh, today he's number one, tomorrow he's number ten. On Saturday, I'm going to totally forget that I have him on the list at all. No, does not work that way. Jesus wants all of you. That's his offer. Full stop, no caveats. Which, I don't know your story, I know some of your stories, I know some of part of your stories, I don't know all of your stories, that might be coming on a little strong for you, <laughs> right? You hear that, you see this, and you're like, I don't know, Jesus, like, can we just chill for a second? Let's take it slow. Let's go on some group dates, you know, and we'll just take it one step at a time. This might come on a little strong for you, so I think I need to tell you why I think this is the way it is with Jesus, 
There's lots of reasons I think he does this. There's lots of reasons he positions in this way. Let me give you just one. One reason why I think Jesus does this and why I think you ought to really consider this. If you've never considered it before or why you ought to consider this every single day, if you, if you are like, yeah, Jesus is the most important part of my life. Every day, every day, every moment of every day, that's the goal, okay? Why? Why does Jesus make such a bold, intense offer? Why? One reason is I think Jesus knows he is the only thing that life can't take away. Jesus knows he's the one thing that life can't take away. Let's just think back to MJ for a second. I I don't know this for 100% certain, but to me it kind of seems like the most important part of Michael Jordan's life was winning basketball games. And he was really, really, really good at that. And without it now, the article says he feels adrift, aimless. As MJ got older and the new NBA players stayed the same young age, life took away his most important thing. One of his friends in the article, I wouldn't say this to MJ, but one of his friends looks at him and says, Father, time ain't lost yet. (laughs) Right? At some point, life took away, I think, Michael Jordan's most important thing. And it didn't do it in a necessarily dramatic way. Sometimes life rips things from us in a very dramatic and difficult way. He retired. He had a ceremony. There was a press conference. But life took it away. He still doesn't have it anymore. And he has found that to be difficult. He is struggling through trying to find his way. And I want to invite you to think about yourself for a moment. I want to invite you to answer this question. What is the most important thing in my life? And don't think of two or three. That breaks the definition. What is the most important thing in your life? Just think about that. Maybe you thought of your family your closest friends, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a fiancé, a spouse. Maybe you thought of your achievements in the classroom. Maybe you thought about the career that you hope to succeed in one day. Maybe you thought of something more intangible, like your intelligence or your beauty or your sense of humor or, I don't know, fill in the blank. What is the most important thing in your life? And listen, here... Here's the hard truth that I need to lay before you this morning. It's not cheerful, it's not joyful, but the reality is that none of that, nothing that I just listed off, nothing that I just listed off is guaranteed. It's not. And we know that. We know that. I'm not not breaking ground here. We know that that's true, but we don't like to think about it. And nothing on that list is bad either. Everything I listed off is good. Everything I listed off is good. There's so much that is good in this life and that's been given to you. Here's the thing. None of it None of it is designed to occupy the most important spot in your life. Nothing that I listed 
nothing on that list was built to be the most important part of your life. It wasn't built for that. The only thing, the only capital P person that was designed to occupy the most important spot in your, most important spot in your life is Jesus Christ. And that may sound really, really cheesy to you. That doesn't insult me if you think that that's cheesy. I could not, that's probably the thing I believe more intensely than anything else I believe. And part of why, if that's the way it is, I think that's the way it is, part of why I'm convinced that's the way it is, is because I'm convinced that actually Jesus designed you, that as God, he had a hand in creating you, that Psalm 139 says that, that you were knit together in your mother's womb, and that Jesus was doing that work, that he knows you, that he built you, and that he made you. And beautifully, I think Jesus made us for himself. He built us and he made us. We're designed in a way that the most important thing in all of our lives should be Jesus. And there's lots of reasons why I think that's true, but life can't take Jesus from you. And beyond just designing you and making you and, and sort of shaping you in a way so that he should occupy the top spot in your heart. Do you know what else Jesus did? When we broke that plan, when we ran, when we rebelled, we were born sinners courtesy of our first parents, Adam and Eve, and we proved that with our rebellion against God. You and I, we've fallen short. And our sin and our rebellion, our rejection of Jesus and his ways has created a chasm between us and God. And you cannot cross that chasm by yourself. You can't do it. Try as you might. You need to be led across that chasm. And you can't lead yourself. You can't be led by anyone else other than the God of this universe. And so do you know what he did? He crossed the chasm. He sent Jesus to live for you. Jesus who created you. He sent Jesus to live for you, to die for you, to rise again for you. And he sent Jesus to be the way for you to cross that chasm. He sent Jesus to lead you back into the most important relationship that you were first designed for. Jesus is the way across the chasm. He's the only way across the chasm. He is. He is. I cannot promise you, and Jesus does not promise you an easy life, but what I can promise you, and what Jesus does promise you, is I can lead you across the chasm. I can lead you into the life that you were designed to live. Surrender your life. Lose it for my sake. Make me the most important part, and I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That is the last thing he said to his followers. He's about to go up into heaven, and that must have been confusing. He had risen from the dead. They had spent time with him. They're like, why are you leaving? And he's like, don't worry. I'm sending the Holy Spirit. That guy is awesome. You're going to love him, but I promise you, I am not leaving you. I am not forsaking you. Even to the end of the age, Jesus said, I will be with you. So I can't promise you easy. 
But I can promise you that Jesus created you, that he loves you, that he lived for you, that he died for you, that he rose again for you, that he knows you, and that he's offering you a way across the chasm into the new life that you were designed to live. And that in that new life, he's not going anywhere. Life can't take him away. That is what I can promise you. So what's the most important thing in your life? I hope it's Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are so good. Your goodness is evident in so many different ways. But your goodness is no more evident than when we look at your son, Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he came. Thank you that he lived. Thank you that he died. Thank you that he rose again. Thank you that he created us. Thank you that he loves us. Thank you that he makes a way across the chasm. Thank you, Father, that Jesus designed us for himself to be the top spot in our life. Thank you that we can put him there by surrendering and losing our life for his sake. I know life is hard. My life is hard. The lives of these students is hard. But you've promised to be with us in the midst. And you've proved that over and over and over again. As we stand and as we close, I pray, Father, that this would honor you and that this song would bring us closer to Jesus. Amen.